Well, if you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, I would appreciate it. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading in verses 8 through 10. And before we do that, let's uh, go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, thank you that we have Bibles in our hands. And if we don't own one ourselves, we can reach not far from us and grab one. Or we can go and buy one. Or we can ask somebody and they'll give us one. We live in a free country where we can do that. And we praise you for that. Because even this morning we've heard about uh, believers and unbelievers who would like to have a Bible in parts of the world and and uh, would be punished if they were caught with one. Would be punished uh, if it became known that they were seeking one. And so, uh, Lord, I, I uh, praise you that we get to have a Bible in our hands. And I pray for those uh, people in those parts of the world where it's dangerous to have Scripture, where it's a death sentence to have Scripture. I pray that you would bless those people. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would uphold them with your righteous right hand, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would give them what they need to continue on. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself strong to them. And in the midst of all of that, that you would use them to minister, even though they are persecuted for their faith, even though uh, they're in trouble and they could be in chains and they could be killed for trusting in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would use them where they are to minister, that they would reach out to people around them, that you would use them mightily and that the kingdom of God would grow even in those dark places, that there would be light born in those dark places and that you would show yourself strong. Lord, we do uh, desire to pray for the safety of our brothers and sisters around the world, and we do pray for that. But Lord, there is something greater than that, and that is this uh, salvation that we're going to talk about today, and it is greater than our personal safety. And so I pray that you would bless them, and I pray that you would use them, um, and I pray that you would minister mightily through them. Father, as we turn to your word, and we get to read it, and we get to study it together, and we're not in fear of someone breaking in the door or coming and uh, kicking us out or anything like that. Uh, Lord, we come to your word, and we desire to know what it says. We desire to know from it what you teach us about yourself and what you teach us about ourselves and how we can know you. Lord, we... Uh, uh, live in such a privileged place and yet all too often my Bible sits on the shelf and I don't read it and there are brothers and sisters in the world who would die to have a single page of it in their possession. Lord, may we honor your word. May we dig into your word. May we value your word. May we be instructed by your word and may we walk in obedience to your word. Lord, this morning I pray that your spirit would have his way in our midst, that you would speak to us, that we would listen that we would respond, that we would be obedient, that we would be sensitive to the moving of your spirit. I pray that you would do a great thing even in our midst, even this morning during our time together. Lord, we give you this service. We give you this time, and uh, we look forward to seeing what you have for us from your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into our passage, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things that are in the bulletin. Uh, first of all, the white insert that you have there is the notes, right? So I'm going to tell you things and you're going to write them down very dutifully and faithfully, right? And, uh, and, and copiously and you're going to learn a ton and this is where you write that, okay? So this is, this is the notes for the, the sermon. So it's the sermon outline there. That's the white page. And so that's for your own personal use, etc. And this one's for your personal use also, but the yellow page, the yellow insert there that we have cleverly called Connect Group Homework, I can't think of a better term. I really wish I could, but uh, there it is, nevertheless, and it's yellow. And uh, this is this is not for you to work on during the service. Uh, this is for you later on before your Connect group. Uh, we meet on Thursday nights, and so usually Wednesday or maybe Thursday afternoon, I go through here and I do this homework so that then I can show up to Connect group. And if if uh, I were asked to read my answer to number four, I don't have to make it up. Right? I've already thought about it and I've already written it down. And so it's me being engaged again with the sermon. And so this is, this is the pattern. This is what we study in our connect groups. And if you're not in a connect group, uh, yet, I would encourage you to, to, to join one. And we're gonna have, um, actually we're, we're right in the middle of our semester, our, our quarter right now with our connect groups. And then we'll be taking a break over the holidays starting towards the end of November. And then we'll kick off again in earnest the beginning of January. And so, uh, we're gonna have some sign up weeks and opportunities that if you, have kind of heard about what's going on with connect groups, but you're not involved and you would like to be, that would be an ideal time for you to get involved. But that's what this is for. So this isn't just, you know, to 
as a bookmark in your Bible, although it could certainly be that, but pull it out before Connect Group and fill it out so that you can have uh, that um, review of the sermon, etc. And uh, we try to make those questions thought-provoking and not just a, a review of the sermon in the sense of, what was what was point 2B again? I can't really remember. That's not the kind of review we're talking about. We're talking about readdressing the issues that we discussed. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, I mentioned when we started this uh, series in Ephesians Sometime past, a couple of months ago, I mentioned that it would be a, a great thing for you to just be reading through Ephesians. And then when you're done, read through it again. And then read through it again. I, I try to make it a discipline when, I, when I'm preaching out of a book. I try and read the book every day, all the way through. And for Ephesians, that's not too bad. Okay, We haven't gotten to Psalms yet, and I'm not sure I can... <laughs> You know, do 150 chapters every single day preaching in Psalms, but but uh, with Ephesians it's not too bad. You can you can read Ephesians and give it the attention that's due it in about 25, 30 minutes, something like that. It's not an enormous enormous chunk of time, and so even if you read one solid paragraph at a time or one chapter at a time per day, that would be a very beneficial thing. And and reading through it uh, all in one sitting is is not a not a difficult thing. So I encourage you to do that. And that helps you when you're reading through Ephesians and you you know that we're going to be talking about Ephesians consistently week after week for a while, uh, probably quite a while actually. We don't usually power through books very fast. Um, But So what that'll be doing is giving you a good context for each of the messages that, that you hear, right? So that you know what's being discussed in Ephesians. So that, so that you have the basis for what kind of topics uh, are being talked about. What, what's the subject and, and what sort of things are being said about those topics? What's the tone of the letter and what, what were the recipients like and all that kind of stuff. And the more you read, uh, Ephesians, the more you pick that stuff up and you start figuring out the information that's in there and it starts making a whole lot more sense, right? If, if you imagine, you know, I, I'm trying to think of an example of something like, for example, when I started working at Starbucks, there was a lot of stuff I had to learn. I did because I don't know beans about kitchens, right? I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the kitchen. But at Starbucks, you do spend quite a bit of time in the kitchen, at least cleaning and stuff, not really cooking. But when I first was introduced to how to clean this and how to do that and how to, you know, rotate these things and all the stuff that was involved with it, it didn't make a lot of sense. And I kind of latched onto one thing and I would learn it well. And then I would pick up another thing and add to it, another thing and add to it. But it, the whole thing didn't make sense to me until later on I became a supervisor and then I was in charge of teaching other people how to do that stuff. And now it all made sense. And so where does this fit? Oh, you do that because it affects this and it changes that. And pow, here's the better service because of it, etc. So the more you know the context, the better you understand the parts that fit in that context. And when we read through the book of Ephesians, that's what we're doing as we're building that context. And so... In light of that, in order to get up to speed before we get to chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, which is what we're going to be talking about today, I want to back up and kind of get a running start at it. So I want to back up into uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians. We're going to back up, and I'm not going to recover everything. We've, we've covered it, but I want to have it fresh in our minds as we come to, to talk about it today so that we'll kind of know what's going on. I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read a chunk here, right? So I'm going to read uh, 1.15 through 2.7. So I'll try not to read it too fast, and uh, I have a tendency to do that. But chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... And your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There are a few things going on there, quite a few things going on, but what I want to draw our attention to today, just so we can have this in mind and we can be thinking about it, think about uh, towards the end of chapter 1 there, for example, a lot of this is in verse 20. Christ was dead, right? And God raised him from the dead. And then what did he do? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies. And then God gave him an incredible future, verses 21 and 22, when he put him in authority over all things in this age and in the one to come, and he gave him his head over the church. Those are the things that God did with Christ. And now look at chapter 2 and the things that God did with us. Chapter 2 and verse 1. We were dead, just like Christ was dead. But God made us alive and raised us up with him, verses 4 and 5, just like he did Jesus. And then he seated us with him in the heavenlies, just like he did Jesus. And then he gave us an incredible future in verse 7 by promising that in the coming ages he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. And so these things that he talked about as a demonstration, the highest demonstration of God's power, right, superlative power there at the end of chapter 1 in Christ because Christ was dead and he raised him and he, he seated him in the heavenlies and then gave him this, this authority and this future. And the same thing is true with us. We were dead and then he raised us from the dead and then he seated us with Christ in the heavenlies and he gives us this great future in Christ. You see the parallels there? And so all of a sudden the power that's talked about at the end of chapter 1 becomes very significant for me and very significant for us. It's not just, oh, God is really strong and his power is at work in you. It's that God is really strong to do these particular things. Oh, and by the way, you were dead and needed these things to be done. And so he does those things for you in Christ. And so that that's kind of the momentum of our passage that, that we're working towards. And that's, that's what I want us to do is kind of take that running start and have that thing in our mind so that we can understand the context of the verses that we're going to get to. We really will get to those verses. But I want us to have that in our mind that this is incredible what has been done for us. That this power of God at work in us is amazing and it's accomplishing things in our lives that are absolutely amazing and will go for eternity. So that's all by way of review. Okay, so as you're taking copious notes, I tried to leave you room. I'm not sure I left nearly enough for that, but uh, that's, that's what I want us to have in our mind. That's what I want us to understand about the context of what's going on. With that context in mind, turn back to chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. With all of that picture, with all of that power, with God's working, with all of that riches and glory in Christ, we come to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So first of all, I want us to look at the nature of salvation. Point number one there, the nature of salvation. What kind of salvation is this? What, what salvation is being offered? I remember when I was a brand new Christian and, and shortly before that, when someone would talk about being saved or getting saved or what does salvation mean? I had no category for that. I knew what it meant to be like, you know, saved from a, you know, an accident or something to be rescued. I, I kind of, of course I had those, those kind of categories in my mind, but what sort of salvation is being talked about here? Cause, uh, you know, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. 
Well, I want to point us back in our minds to chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, what we just talked about. What we just talked about. The condition there in verse 1, first of all, that we were dead. We were dead. And there's not a whole lot a dead person can do. They don't have, they can't respond. And, and that's how he describes us there in verse 1. He said, you were dead. But verse, verse 4, but he made you alive. Even though you were dead, even though you were unresponsive, even though there was, no, there, there was no life there, He made you alive. And then He raised you up with Him. And then He seated you with Him in the heavenlies. And then He offers you this future. And so that's the salvation. That's the nature of this salvation that we're talking about. It's an eternal thing. And it's a massive thing. It's not just uh, something you do as a kid or or whatever. It's, a, it's an all-encompassing entire picture of all of the future. It is the most significant thing. Salvation. Salvation. To be rescued from a plight that you deserve and that you can't save yourself from. And that's what he does. That's exactly what he does. And so that's the, that's the nature of this salvation is that it means life. When you were dead, it means life for you. That's the nature of this salvation. Secondly, it's ours by grace. It's ours by grace. Look, he says, for by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Now, grace is a common term. It's even a name, right? It's a, it's a good name. We should name people grace. And, uh, it, but what does it mean? What does it really mean? Well, generally, if you try to define it, if you think about what a definition of grace is, there are, there are lots of ways to define it, but most generally, it means something like unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Something you didn't deserve, but that you received. Unmerited. Right? It's, it's the favor of God poured out on you, though you don't deserve it. So that's generally a, a good definition of the word grace. But in Ephesians, Paul gets a little bit more specific with what he means uh, by the word grace. And, and grace in Ephesians usually means something like this. God's free and generous act of initiating and completing salvation for undeserving people. So it's not just this general unmerited favor. It gets more specific, that it's more specific about God freely and generously of his own will, seeking out people who don't deserve it and initiating and then completing salvation on their, on their part. So grace has a lot to do and everything to do with salvation, particularly in the book of Ephesians. And so it's, it's very specific. And so that word grace, when he says, for by grace you've been saved, carried in that is a lot of freight. The idea of God doing the acting, God doing the work. When you were dead and unresponsive, he stepped in and made it possible. He stepped in and made you alive. And then he continued, and we're going to see how grace continues. But that's what grace really is. And so uh, the nature of this salvation, first of all, it means life, and it's ours by grace. God working. And we've we've looked at chapter 1, we've looked at chapter 2, and from election... To predestination, these are words that are discussed there in chapter 1. To redemption, to uniting us with him, it's all God's plan. It's at his initiation. And he, if he had not initiated it, it would not have happened. And so he's moving, he's acting, and that salvation is ours by grace here, it says in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It comes through faith. Now, we've... We kind of wrestle with what faith means, and we've talked about it several times in, in, in our times together and from the pulpit. We've talked about what, what faith means, what it really means. It, does it mean intellectual assent? Does it mean that I, I know and believe that these things are true, right? That I believe that these things actually are so, uh, and I give, I give intellectual assent to those things. Well, that's necessary, but that is not faith, that's not that's mental assent. That's understanding and and knowing that these things are true. Even though e- even though I'm believing that they're true, the the biblical idea of faith is connected more to me. It's connected more to my response to that, right? I've used the illustration of the chair, where where I take a chair and I put a chair out here, and and I point to the thing and I and I ask you, is it a strong, sturdy chair? Yes, it is. It's got good, good construction, good materials, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, do you think it would hold me up? Well, yeah, sure, it should hold you up, no problem at all. Okay, I agree, it would hold me up. 
But if I'm still standing over here and, and the chair's there, am I having faith? Am I expressing faith in this chair? No, I'm not. It's a great chair. I have every intellectual reason for believing it would hold me up. I'm just going to stay over here on my own two feet. Thank you. I'm not expressing faith in that chair, am I? It's not until I actually sit down in the chair and put my weight there that I express faith and I demonstrate that, yes, I believe it'll hold me up. And right now it's the only thing holding me up, right? Because I'm sitting in it. That is faith. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, by grace, you've been saved through faith, through faith. So it's not just an intellectual assent that, wow, these things are true. There are a lot of things that I believe are true that I don't put any faith in. But the response, the response to what God's doing that is a saving faith is the response that when we say these things are true and I'm going to bet my life on them, I'm going to sit down in that chair. That is faith. That's what it means to respond in faith. So first of all, the nature of salvation, well, it means life. It's ours by grace and it comes to us through faith. Secondly, our role in salvation. There's a good question for you. Think about that a little bit. What is our role in salvation? Because he continues there in verse 8, right? He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what, what is our role in it? Well, first of all, salvation doesn't come from us. It's, this is not of your own doing. It's not of yourselves. Right? It didn't come from you. It, it's not ours because we have a, uh, some birthright to it, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a human and therefore I have this, this value within me that God should save me. It's from me. No, it's not from me. It's not because I have some intrinsic uh, worth that, that God should save me because of, right? That's not what it is, right? It's, it's not that I have this particular birthright that, that he, he should save me uh, because I'm you know, American or because whatever. I don't, there's nothing from me that earns this thing. I don't deserve it. It's, it's not something that comes of me. And it's, it's not, uh, I think we have this, we have this idea that, that God owes us something. Have you ever had a conversation with someone? Maybe you've raised the question, uh, and you've talked about some people being saved and some people not being saved. And, and isn't that unfair? Isn't that unfair of God? The inherent in that statement is that God owed me something and he didn't give it to me. Or he owed this person something and he didn't give it to that person. Therefore, isn't God unfair? That's, that's kind of the argument. And, and that's kind of the way we think about God sometimes. What he's saying here is that it is not of ourselves. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. The fact that we get to draw another breath is evidence of his grace in our lives. We get to draw yet another breath. There's his grace again. He doesn't owe you anything. If he took that breath away, he would still be within his rights because we are rebels against him and he's the sovereign king. And what does a sovereign king owe to a rebellious people? Nothing. Nothing. And so this salvation is not ours because of some birthright. It's not ours because there's some inherent value or worth within me or that God owes me something. It's not of ourselves. And he goes on and says it's, it's not earned by works. It's not earned by works. And this covers a broad spectrum, of course. In the, in the Jewish mindset, they were given the law, right? They were given the Old Testament and included in the Old Testament are the books of the law, the commandments of Moses, the Ten Commandments, all those things. You're familiar with those things. And, and a good Jew would obey those things, right? He's living his life in obedience. And they're inherent in there somewhere is this idea that, hey, I've done the law. I've kept it. Yeah, you're not perfectly. Nobody's perfect. But I've kept the law, right? I've earned this thing. I've done more good than evil. Right? I've done more good than bad, and therefore, I've kind of earned this thing by my works. Well, today, we don't too often think about um, trying to earn it in that sense. Right? We don't think specifically of, uh, I tithed everything I should have, and therefore, I've earned it. We don't usually think in those terms. There may be some who do. We don't think about you know, keeping the, 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 uh, the, the dietary laws of the Old Testament or, or those sorts of things. We don't normally think in those terms, but we do think in terms of, I'm a, I'm a good guy. I'm a pretty good guy. 
right? And particularly compared to so-and-so, I'm a really good guy. You know, if you, if you lined my life up with his life, I would definitely come out on top, right? And so we have this idea of the scales. And I think this is the way we often think about it. And our culture often thinks about it. We have this idea that as long as I do less bad than I do good, I'm going to be good to go. And, and I'll get in. Because God grades on a curve, obviously. And, uh, and I made the cut, right? I made the cut. And so that's this idea of works. That's usually the way we think of it, right? And I don't know what those works might be. It's probably different for, for different cultures. Uh, maybe it's the way you treat other people. I, I just behave in, you know, in a, I, I try not to be selfish. You know, I, I try to be selfless and help other people. And so I've earned it. That's the work that I do. Or, you know, I try to do this thing or not do that thing or whatever the, whatever the construct is that we have in our own minds that our culture has come up with or that we have come up with or our family has given us or whatever. We have some sort of a construct where we think there's a ladder of some kind and by doing certain kinds of works, whatever you think those works are, I can get there and I can make it to the top and then I'm good to go. And I think that's inherent in fallen man that we have that in us, that we have that in us that we think somehow it's by works, but it is not earned by works. It's not something that we earn by works. Instead, it's the free gift of God. It's the free gift of God. Now, when I was uh, 16, I started working at a construction company at Tedford Construction in town, and I would get paid every Friday. And when I got paid... I didn't immediately run over to Jack Tedford and just thank him for the money that he gave. This gift is so wonderful. I'm so glad you did it again. You know, another, another paycheck that you, that you gave me, right? No, you don't do that because there was an arrangement between me and him. And that arrangement was, I will show up and work and I will work hard during these hours or whatever hours you need. And you will pay me a certain rate per hour, etc. And by the end of it, I've given you my time and you've given me the money. Is that a gift? No, I didn't gift him my time and he didn't gift me the money. It was an arrangement. It was an agreement, right? And that's the idea of I earned it by my work. And he says, no, that is not the way salvation is. It's the free gift of God. It's what he gives. It's not something that we earn. It's, it's of him that, that he gives and it's a free thing. And it's not only that, but it's of his, of his free choice, his choice, his choice that he does that. The, the fact that he'd be willing to give eternal life to you who don't deserve it is an amazing thing. And so it's not from ourselves. It's not earned by works. It's instead the free gift of God. It's his giving. He chose to give it. And it's amazing that he does that. And it's wonderful that he does that. And we need to remind ourselves that this salvation that we have was not a contract between me and God. It was a gift from God to me. It's the free gift of God. And so... Point D there, there is no room for boasting. He says, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. And I think this is a big deal. And this is, this is kind of behind this passage here that all along when I talked about what happened with Christ in chapter 1 and I talk about what he does with Christians in chapter 2 of taking them from a place of death and in need of redemption, and having nothing to offer themselves to God, and yet he makes them alive, and he's the one who works in them. He raises them up. He, he seats them with Christ in the heavenlies and gives them this future and all of that stuff. Who gets the credit for that? Well, of course, God gets the credit for that. There's no boasting that you and I can do. There's no place. There's no room for us to boast. There's no place in there that we can find that point and say, yeah, God did all this stuff, but I did that. I did that little thing. And so I get to have that little part of the credit, right? I get, to, I get to boast in this. I was smart enough to figure it out. When the gospel was presented, I thought about it and I weighed my options and, and I was smart enough and wise enough to figure out that, yes, uh, I should do this thing. I should make this deal with God, right? And if you were just a little bit smarter, you would make that deal too. But uh, since you're not so much, you know, it's going to... That's the boasting that's inherent. That's inherent in, uh, in, the, in our thinking sometimes. If we start assigning ourselves some responsibility in this, that we, if we start seeing it as a contract between us and God, as something that we held up our end of the deal, and so God did all this massive stuff, and so I get the credit for that. No, there is no room for boasting. God has set it up in such a way, and chapter 1 and chapter 2 spell this out, so that there is zero place for you and for me to boast. There's nothing to boast about. We're going to come back to this point 
at the end. Let's move on to point three right now. God, works, and salvation. How do those things work together? God, works, and salvation. This is a big question, right? This is a big question because there, there is this expectation. You read in the New Testament and Christians are told to do stuff and they're told not to do other, other stuff. And so what's the relationship there? What's going on there between, between God and these works and salvation? Well, look at verse 10. Actually, we talked about this in Sunday school today, and I, I won't say this person's name. Uh, quoted 8 and 9 and knew those and, and didn't have verse 10 memorized. And so I think probably a lot of us are that way. I know the first time I memorized these verses, I didn't have verse 10 connected. But here's verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First of all, notice in there, we are his workmanship. God created us in Christ Jesus. God creates us anew in Christ. And that's the idea of what happens when he takes us from dead. Remember verse 1, and you were dead. He takes us from that stage of being dead and he makes us alive. He gives us new life in Christ, right? Take just a moment and flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. It's just a couple books to the left. Probably many of you know this verse. And this, this verse is kind of talking about this idea, this new life, this new creation, what it means to be in Christ and the changes that have happened. All right, so we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's just, again, a couple of books left from Ephesians. Therefore... Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's that idea of God doing a work in a person's heart when he makes them alive and he transforms them. He he doesn't just change their lifestyle. It doesn't say he starts acting a whole lot better. It says he's new. He's a new creation. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's like you 2.0 kind of. Like it's, it's different. God made changes and he created you new in Christ. And so you have this new life. And that's the same idea back in Ephesians chapter 2 that he's talking about there of, of creating you anew, creating you anew, working back. Uh, look back at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 again. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So we've been put into Christ. We've been made new. We've been given new life, whereas before we were dead. And that's the work that he's doing in us. So how do we relate God, works, and salvation together? Well, the first step is to understand what he says here about the fact that he creates us anew in Christ. Now, you're going to look the same, right? And you're going to smell the same. You're going to have the same relationships, but there's something new that's gone on internally. And I, I think of it in terms of uh, almost a, like a toggle switch. And it has a, a default. It wants to stay set one way usually unless you intentionally flip it the other way, right? And so before you were in Christ, we have this switch, and the switch is to sin, right? And it never even occurs to us to switch it off of sin onto obedience. It never even really occurs to us, right? We might like to look like it. But as a sinner before Christ, boom, it's set. the switch is set over on sin, Right? And now, when we're made new in Christ, all of a sudden I'm new, I'm alive in Christ, and I know who He really is and who I am in Him. The switch is set over here in obedience. And sometimes, I push it back over to the sin side. And it comes back to this side, right? And there, we live, we live, you know, portions of our lives holding it over on the sin side. I don't know why we do that. It's called sin. But we do that. But the, the default setting is obedience. And that's a new thing. It was never that way before when we were dead. The default setting was sin, and who cares about if there's any other setting, because I'm good here, right? And now, the default setting is over here, and I, I sometimes, or even often, push it over to the other side, and that's part of growing in the Christian life, is, is walking in this new life that we have. So we've been created new in Christ. And I love what he says here. Looking back at verse 10, For we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Look how he finishes. That we should walk in them. 
that we should walk in them. Look at the top of the chapter. Look at the top of the chapter. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Still in Ephesians. Chapter 2 and verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He starts off the paragraph by talking about how you walk. Right? The switch is set over here. When you're dead in your trespasses and sins, hey, this is how I walk. That's just who I am. That's the way I live life, right? This is the setting over here. It never occurs to me to, to push it the other way. And look what, look what God does here. I've called it, he, he corrects our walk, right? Because here in verse 10, we see that he has done these things. He's created us new in Christ that we should walk in these new things. He's corrected our walk. We used to walk that way. And now we walk this way. We walk according to this new life that we have in Christ. He has set this up for us. And he's corrected our walk. And I, I love the inclusio of that. Uh, just It makes it a, a, a beautiful passage in the way it goes from us being dead and walking according to that death. And by the end of the paragraph, he's made us alive and we walk according to that life. That's huge. And that has practical implications for my life. You think about that. I was, I was talking in a, in a conversation this weekend. We were a couple different conversations and, and, uh, we were talking about marriage and we were talking about a, uh, you know, a woman serving her husband. That was the kind of the topic of the conversation. And, and, and they were talking about a, you know, a teenage boy and if, if he wanted to have a wife, like mama who who really you know served her husband he better shop long and hard and he better just find the right kind of woman and then treat her very well if he wanted to be served that way and i thought oh you know it's kind of it's funny and there's a lot of truth in that and then steph and i were talking about it later and 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 she was saying when when you're in a, the right relationship and the husband is treating the wife the way he should and he loves her and he's gracious toward her and he provides for her and he protects her and takes care of her she wants to serve him. He doesn't have to demand. He doesn't have to lay down the law. She wants to. She responds to that. And I think that's, that's exactly what's going on here. That's, that's part of our obedience. His correcting our walk. Now he's, he's set these things up for us and we're going to talk more about that, etc. But we're walking according to this life. Look at the gracious things God's done for us. We started in verse one dead. And he's done all these things to bring us back to life. And now we get to walk according to that life instead of walking according to that death. And we want to. That's what we want to, right? And, and so that's part of this understanding or this discussion we're having about God and works and salvation. God corrects our walk. Look at point C. God gives salvation and then works. He gives salvation and then works. Look at, look at the wording there. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That's pointing back to he made you alive, right? Verse 4, verse 5. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So I want us to think very clearly about the logical relationship between these two. Between the, the new life in Christ and the works. <clears throat> Is there obedience? There's obedience. There are things he wants us to do. But think very clearly about how this is, the way it's worded. New life in Christ. He created us in Christ Jesus. Pow. That's primary. That came first. That's the determining factor. New life in Christ. He created us in Christ Jesus. And the result that comes from that is works. It comes afterwards. Regeneration, new life, New creation, being in God's family, being forgiven, being accepted in Christ, that's what comes first. And then following from that, here are the works. And so I want us to have that very clear in our minds because very often we don't. Very often we kind of flip that around logically and since they're in the same verse and we tend to think in terms of works, we kind of get them, uh, get it mixed around, right? And we think either I need to earn my way in the kingdom somehow. And we would never say that because we know you're not supposed to say that. But in our minds, we kind of think that I need to earn my way somehow by whatever these works are to get into the kingdom. We either think that or we think, hey, I'm in the kingdom. 
if I want to stay here or if I want God to be happy with me, I better do these things. Right? I better do these things. And look, look at what it does here. He, he doesn't say, you were created in Christ Jesus and so you better get out there and do good works. Do you see that in there? It better not be in your text. If it is, I need to talk about the version you've got. Because it's not in there. He says, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. It flows out of. It's subsequent to. It's derivative upon this salvation in Christ, being made new in Christ. It's something that comes secondary. We were created in Christ Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. And so there's a new way to walk, right? We're set over here. We walk according to life. And he set it up that way, and he designed it that way so that we would walk according to life. And just like the wife of the husband who treats her as he ought. We love to serve. Of course we love to serve, and that's the way we respond to God. God gives salvation, and then comes works. And what's interesting is not, I generate works, right? I'm created new in Christ, and I generate these works. That is not the way it's written, right? It's God who is the one doing it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Where do those good works come from? Did you think of them? Did we tell each other to do them? Do you have a list, a book somewhere that some guy wrote? No. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who's the author of our works? If I were to ask you who's the author of our salvation, well, very clearly in this passage, it's been God from beginning to end. Who's the author of our obedience? God is the author of our obedience. I don't, I don't know how often we think about that. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the way God has designed it. He's the one who, who has put it together. And he's not just saying, okay, now I created you know, new in Christ. Have a great time and go and see what you can accomplish or see what you can do. He has even arranged the path he wants us to walk. He's even arranged this new walk that he's corrected for us, right? We used to walk according to, to our trespasses and sins, and now we walk in newness of life. And he is the one who has designed that. And so he's the author of our salvation. And he's also the author of our works. He's the author of our obedience. That, that makes you think differently, right? You don't, you don't go from, oh, gracious salvation in Christ, and man, I really better do something about it or else. That transition doesn't happen. He authored the works, the obedience also. God gives salvation and then he gives works. And look at point D. God gets the glory even for our obedience. Everywhere through here, all through here, we've seen that it is his workmanship. It is he doing the work. He's the one who's accomplishing it from beginning to end. It's all him and all glory goes to him. No glory comes to me and no glory goes to you. And we don't want it. It goes to him. And that's, that is at the heart of what's going on in this passage is that the glory goes to him. It's all orchestrated by him. He gets the credit. He gets the glory even for our obedience. That's amazing. Even for our obedience. All right, what do we take away from this? What do we take away? First of all, connected with this, what I'd like you to do is go up to point 2D where it says no room for boasting. Take your pen or your pencil on your outline there and circle that part. No room for boasting. Point 2D. And I have you do that because I believe that is the logical center, the logical thrust and point of the passage. Is that there is no place for you and there is no place for me to boast. That makes sense for the argument of the book of Ephesians. And as you read it and read it and read it, you'll see that that's the direction he's going because he's going to start talking about us being united, us Gentiles in Christ being united with Jews who are in Christ and being made one people. And so the, the uh, animosity between us has been broken down. The barrier, those old things that were there, the boasting has been broken down. And what's the foundation of it being broken down? The foundation of it being broken down is this salvation being free in Christ. There is no room for boasting. And so, Christians, the, the term prideful Christian, the idea of a prideful Christian is a contradiction in terms. How in the world can we be prideful when we are in Christ because of his great work? 
And there is no room for our boasting. There's no place in there for our credit. All glory goes to Him. The whole plan was His. The execution of the plan, the power, the whole thing was His. It was His. And so there's no room for us to boast. And so it should never happen. I know it does. I know it does. And I've probably been the culprit in this. But it should never happen that when a Christian is talking with someone who's not a Christian about the gospel, we should never come off as holier than thou or as having it figured out and they don't or as somehow being better than them. How can that be when I'm in the kingdom because of God's gracious work and I never deserved it? I was dead I was dead. And so, Christian, I want us to think about that when we share the gospel, when we're talking with, with unbelievers around us. We're not in because we're smarter, because we're better, or because we deserve it more, or for any other reason except that God worked. Second of all, Christian, this passage should put to rest any anxiety that we have to measure up to God to retain His favor, to remain His child, to stay in the kingdom. Right? I'm graciously saved by God and now I better work, work, work to earn it. Or I better work, work, work to keep it. That's put to rest in this whole passage. So we need to give up that anxiety. We should just put that to rest. That should not be a thought anymore. Even the obedience is authored by him. That's the way he set it up. You are new in Christ and his workmanship and so you walk according to life. You're going to walk according to life. Now, how, do we, how we understand that with the commands of Scripture and, and all that stuff is, is a separate subject, but it is God who puts that together and He has created new life in you and you will respond in obedience to Him as a Christian. I'm not saying you had better respond in obedience to Him as a Christian. I didn't say that. I said you will, as a Christian, respond in obedience to Him. And you'll grow in that. We're not always very good at it, but we grow in that. We're just responding to the new life that's actually in us. I want us to notice, look back at uh, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What does this refer to? What does this refer to? I didn't, I haven't made a big deal of it at this point because I don't think, uh, there, there are some who argue that this points specifically to faith. Faith is the gift. I think that's inherent in there, but the this is this whole salvation. This whole salvation is the gift of God. The fact that it's available to you, the fact that he makes you alive and you can respond to it, it's all a gift from him. It's all a gift from him. And so that, that's why I haven't, haven't made too much of a big deal out of it to this point, but what I want us to come away with is to see that it is God's plan. It is God's work. It is what he's done, and he gets the credit for it. He gets the credit for it. He's the one at work. Finally, I want to end with this. There may be some out here who are hearing this for the first time. Or maybe understanding it for the first time. I don't know. But what I want you to know is, for those of us who are believers, we didn't bring something special to the table so that God would let us in. This salvation is free. He's talked again and again in this passage about the fact that you were dead and undeserving. You were happily walking according to your trespasses and sins. Following after the course of this world, right? That's, that's the way you're happily living as an unbeliever. And that's the way we were happily living as, un, as unbelievers. But God steps in and he creates life where there was no life. And he raises us with Christ and he seats us with him in the heavenlies. We're with him. We're identified with him. We're, we have this very privileged and special position in God's eyes. And it wasn't because we did something. It's because God did something. And then our future is glorious. Our future is brilliant. And nowhere in there, at no step, was I superior to anyone. Nowhere in there were you superior to anyone. We're all undeserving. And so this offer is freely made to all. And so if this is the first time you've heard this or the first time you really understand it, I want you to think about what that death and separation means and what this glorious future, this glorious inheritance is that's offered in Christ. And think about what the alternative is. Remaining dead. Remaining separated from God. And then what kind of future do you have in that position? A future and eternity of separation in hell. 
separated from God, separated from all of God's blessings. And so that's, that's what's before you. And so I implore you this morning, even as we, we wrap up right now, I pray that you would think about this for yourself and that you would respond in faith, not just mental assent that, yeah, these things are true, but that you would say, you know what, these things are true and it's my only hope and I'm going to sit in the chair. It's the only thing I've got. I'm going to cling to it. It's all I've got. I pray that you do that this morning because in that is salvation because by grace you've been saved through faith. So I pray that you would trust him in that way, even this morning, that you would cling to him, that you would understand and that you would respond, he's the only hope I've got, and that you'd put your faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that someone do that even now, even while we're bowed and praying, sitting next to people and thinking about lunch or whatever. I pray that that some would respond to you and realize there is no other hope, that their condition is hopeless apart from Christ, and that they would lean on him, that they would trust in him, that they would respond in faith. I pray that you would do that in their lives even now. I pray that you would make them alive, that you would do that, Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great, incredible salvation. I pray as we go that we would think about this and that we would talk about what it's like to have you create new life in us and what it's like for you to have corrected the way we walk, that we can walk in newness of life, whereas we used to walk in death. What it is to be restored to right relationship to you. What it is to have this glorious future that we have in this wonderful position in Christ. Lord, may we give you praise even in our conversation. May we give you praise in our actions this week, the way we live our lives, the way we talk to one another, uh, the way we talk to people around us who don't know you, the way we come to your word and want to read it again, to hear again about this great salvation. Lord, thank you for our time and we trust you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much and uh, go in grace and you're dismissed.